gospel uh, forward and takes the gospel to people who uh, have never heard the gospel before. What does that look like for us as a church? We'll look into that a little more this morning. Before we get into the word this morning, I just want to say a quick word. I I think there may be some of you here who uh, have, it's been a long time since you've been excited about the things of God. Right? Maybe you've, you've been at church, maybe you haven't been at church, but, uh, but it's been a long time since, since you've been really energized and excited and overjoyed at, at the things of God. And so uh, this morning, my prayer for you is that you would just be overjoyed and excited, at, that you would remember the, the gospel message, that salvation that comes from Jesus Christ, and that you would be excited about it, and that would lead you to be excited and overjoyed at the things of God, that you would be excited about digging into God's word this morning and applying to your life, that you would be excited about lifting up the, the, the glorious good news of the gospel through song to one another, that, that you would be excited once again and renewed in an excitement for the things of God this morning. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel, that there is salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would enliven our hearts and enliven our spirits. And God, you would give us a joy and excitement for the things that you provide, the things that you offer, God, that we would have energy and excitement as we open up your word and that we can't wait to hear what you're going to say to us this morning, God. And I pray that as we sing together, God, that we would have a joy and excitement in lifting up the good news of the gospel and an excitement in sharing these glorious truths to one another. I pray this morning that you would shape and mold us, that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us and a heart that is ready to apply it. God, I pray that we would leave here this morning better than when we came because of our time in the Word. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17 this morning. Acts 21, beginning in verse 17, it says this. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told about nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're going to cover a large uh, uh, amount of Scripture this morning, uh, and so just bear with me as we get through this, uh, as we get through this passage. But uh, I want to make a note. Uh, marketing is difficult. Uh, marketing is not an easy thing to do. Pretty much every organization uh, tries it. 
right, in one way or another, and most organizations experience marketing failures in one way or another. Right? Maybe uh, cost of acquisition was higher than you wanted, conversion rates were lower than expected, uh, campaigns just totally flop. Like marketing is not easy. And it's as hard as marketing is, uh, marketing something across language barriers and to different cultures is even more difficult, right? It just compounds the problem. You, it, it's, it's hard enough to sell a product. It, it, trying to communicate, if you communicate something poorly in another language or in another culture, that just makes it a whole lot harder, right? Ford once wanted to uh, sell their cars and market their cars in Belgium. And so while Ford was marketing their cars, they decided to go with the slogan, every car has a high quality body, right? Trying to really sell their product. The problem was when their slogan was translated into Dutch in Belgium, uh, they'd read, every car has a high quality corpse. Uh, and I would be more concerned if it worked, right? Like if the ad campaign was successful. Uh, the uh, Coors, the beer company, uh, years ago used to have a slogan and this, this whole big campaign, turn it loose used to be their campaign, and they, it worked in the United States. It was really successful. So they decided they wanted to take their Turn It Loose campaign international. They were going to take it to other countries, forgetting the fact that Turn It Loose is slang, so it's not easily translatable. So they decided to take it to Spain. The problem is, uh, Turn It Loose, when translated into Spanish in Spain, the, the phrase that they used, most uh, directly translated to suffer from diarrhea. So again, they didn't uh, succeed selling their beers in, in Spain. My personal favorite, uh, the Swedish vacuum company or uh, appliance company Electrolux wanted to market their vacuums in the United States by highlighting their performance over other vacuums. Uh, but the slogan that they decided to choose was, nothing sucks like an Electrolux. And I love that slogan. <laughs> like Personally, I might go out and get an Electrolux just because of that slogan. It's phenomenal. But the thing is, like the packaging matters. Right? Like how you present something, how you sell something, that, that matters. And the, these advertisers in those examples created a lot more problems with their advertising. They built more barriers to people buying their products instead of overcoming barriers and removing barriers like advertising is supposed to do. And that same principle applies to the gospel. Now, the gospel isn't a product to be sold, and you and I are not advertisers or marketers. But you and I, by the way that we live and the way that we present the gospel, we can have a negative impact on the way that somebody else perceives the gospel. And by doing so, we can build barriers to the gospel instead of tearing them down. Paul recognized the importance of removing barriers to the gospel. And we see that during his first week here in Jerusalem. Now, it's been years of Paul traveling and taking detours, all of which we have covered in the last few chapters of the book of Acts. Paul has been traveling for years, and he's finally made it to Jerusalem. Verse 17 says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So when Paul made it to Jerusalem, the first thing that he did was he went and he found Christians in Jerusalem so that he could celebrate with them, encourage them, lift them up, stay with them. This is the same thing he did at every city on his way to Jerusalem. He found the Christians there and he encouraged them. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles 
through his ministry. So after a good night's sleep, staying with these Christians, Paul went in with James and the other elders. So James, at this point, was the most influential leader in the church at Jerusalem. He kind of supplanted Peter at this point uh, in the church in Jerusalem. This is the same James who wrote uh, the book of James. This is the the half-brother of Jesus, James the most influential leader there in Jerusalem. And so Paul goes to see him and all the other leaders, the other elders of the church at Jerusalem, and he begins sharing all that God did in his ministry through him and through his ministry team among the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. He begins sharing all the great things that happened, all the, all the stories that we've read and talked about in the book of Acts. They got a firsthand account from Paul that all the miracles and the, the, the revivals that God was, was bringing about through Paul's ministry and through the ministry of his team. And so they hear all of this news. And in verse 20, we find out that these elders, they celebrated this news. Like they were overjoyed at the good news of what was happening among the Gentiles. Now, this is an important moment. Because at this point, the Jew-Gentile divide was still strong in the, in the early church. Like these, these Jewish leaders and these Jewish Christians were still wrestling with this sense of Jewish superiority over the Gentiles that they had had their entire life. They had grown up their entire life thinking that the Jews were superior to the Gentiles, that the Jews were the people of God and not the Gentiles, that the Jews were the people that had God's special favor. So to be a Jew meant that God looked favorably upon you, and to be a Gentile meant that you were unclean and dirty and needed to come and repent and become like a Jew. And so this ent- their entire lives, that's what they had believed. And so this, even when they placed their faith in Jesus, this Jew-Gentile divide still remained. That's why a lot of our New Testament books highlight this Jew-Gentile divide, and Paul speaks to it regularly and, and tries to mend this divide and explain the gospel in a way that relates to both people. And so to hear these Jewish Christian leaders in the city of Jerusalem celebrating what God was doing among the Gentiles is powerful. These Jewish Christian leaders are hearing what God is doing among the non-Jews, and he, they're hearing the, the revival that's breaking out and the, the good news of salvation that these Gentiles were accepting, and they are overjoyed. They are thrilled about what God is doing among the Gentiles, and that's a powerful moment. But they move quickly from that joy and from that, uh, that, that, um, that excitement. They move quickly from that, and they give Paul a warning in verse 20. Look at me, the second half of verse 20. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. So these Jewish Christian leaders, these elders in the church of Jerusalem, they warn Paul that the, the, both the Christian and the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem have a very unfavorable opinion of Paul. They don't like Paul at all. Because there's been this rumor that's been spread about Paul among the Christians and the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem. What they're hearing is that Paul isn't just going out and proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, which is already bad enough. 
right? Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, sharing the fact that they can have eternal life in Jesus, his, him going to the people that they deemed unclean and sharing the message of salvation, the fact that they could become part of the people of God that was already bad enough to the Jews. But it wasn't just the fact that Paul was going to the Gentiles and proclaiming the gospel. The rumor was that Paul was actually going out to these far regions of the Roman Empire and telling the Jews in those regions of the empire that they should not be Jewish anymore. He's telling the Jews out in these far regions that they need to abandon the law, they need to abandon their customs, they need to abandon their heritage, and they need to become like Gentiles. And so this rumor is spreading about, so both the Christians and the non-Christian Jews are hearing this news about Paul, and they hate him. They do not like this guy at all because they, they think that Paul is going around telling people that they need to abandon any semblance of Jewish, her- Jewish heritage and become like the Gentiles who they can't stand. And so they give him a little warning and say, they're going to they're, they're gonna know you're here, <laughs> right? It's going to be pretty obvious in a short amount of time that Paul is here in Jerusalem, that this guy that they hate is among us. So, so what are we going to do? What they suggest is that Paul go out of his way to observe Jewish customs. Look at me in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now the vow that they're talking about there is, is what's called the, uh, the Nazarite vow. It's an Old Testament vow we find out in Numbers chapter 6. Long story short, what these guys have done is they have set themselves apart for God for a specific period of time. And kind of like fasting, they have avoided certain things and they haven't cut their hair the entire time that they were under the vow. And so what happens is at the end of the vow, you go to the temple and you offer up these sacrifices for yourself and then you cut your hair to signify that the vow is over. Right? So they have these four men who had placed themselves under this Old Testament vow, this setting themselves apart for God. Verse 24, they say, Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So what James and the other elders encouraged Paul to do is to go with these guys and, and these guys were not just following the normal Jewish practices, right? These weren't just, just people who, who uh, did the, the few things that you have to do to be considered clean as a Jew. These people were Nazarite vow holders, right? These were people that went out of their way to go above and beyond in Jewish customs. Like these were people that nobody could doubt followed Jewish customs. And so Paul was supposed to tag along with them and then uh, uh, pay for them, support them, and cleanse himself alongside them so that everyone would say, oh, Paul's with those guys. And so by doing that, they would know, oh, okay, Paul isn't telling people to abandon their Jewish heritage. Paul isn't telling people to abandon their Jewish customs and that everything would be okay. What Paul is doing here and what, they suge- what the elders suggest is that Paul remove barriers to the gospel in Jerusalem. Because right now, the fact that he is someone who, who is perceived as, as telling people they need to abandon all of their Jewish customs and all of their Jewish heritage is an incredibly uh, a large barrier to the gospel. It is highly offensive to the Jews. And so what they're, the elders are suggesting is that Paul remove that barrier and go and let everybody know that he's, that's not what he's doing. He's not telling people to abandon their customs and their heritage. I do want to make a note that several times in the New Testament, actually frequently, in the New Testament, Paul does tell people that they're no longer under the law and that they shouldn't try to follow the law or place themselves under the law to earn salvation. So Paul does 
teach that and, and preach that and write that throughout the New Testament. What James says here is not contradicting what Paul has said. Notice what James says in verse 25. As for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter from, with our judgment. This is referring to a letter sent earlier in the book of Acts that we talked about. Uh, we've sent a letter with our judgment that we should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled from sexual immorality. The idea of that letter, the overarching idea, is that Gentiles do not need to follow the law. There's no salvation in the Old Testament law. So they don't need to place themselves under it. They don't need to become Jews. But they need to avoid these things because they're extra offensive to the Jews. It's a general idea. And so what James is affirming in this verse is, yes, you don't need to follow the law. Christians don't need to follow the law. They don't need to place themselves under Jewish observance. They don't need to become Jews. Like, we affirm that. We agree with what you're teaching in your letters and in your preaching. We agree with all of that. You don't need to do any of this, but we're suggesting that you go out of your way to observe Jewish customs so as not to offend these Jews and to remove the barrier of the gospel. And so Paul does exactly that in verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So they walk into the temple. Paul agrees. They walk into the temple. He, he walks up to the, the people who are in charge, and he says, we're going to purify ourselves for these next seven days. Uh, these guys are under a vow. I'm going to take care of all their charges. Uh, and so in seven days, we'll come back with the offering and the money. All right, so he, they follow suit. And and. Right off the bat, like the plan seems to be working. Right, for the first five or six days, it's not a problem. People see Paul in the temple. They see Paul with these guys. They probably are, are assured that, okay, Paul's not telling people not to be Jewish. There's not a problem. But then the plan goes horribly wrong. Because the first five or six days were great. The last one or two days were a nightmare. Because some Jews who were from Asia... Asia was a, a province of the Roman Empire where Paul had spent a lot of time. These Jewish leaders from Asia had made their way to Jerusalem, and they saw Paul in the temple on one of the last days that he was supposed to be uh, being cleansed there in the temple, being purified. They saw Paul in the temple, and they make a big deal about it. Look with me in verse uh, uh, 28. These Jews from Asia, Asia cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is very melodramatic. Like this entire speech is extremely melodramatic. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so I, this is very dramatic you can see, like, men of Israel, help! And then he go, they go on to say, every, he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Like, they're very dramatic. They're very passionate. And what's worse is it's actually based on a misunderstanding. This entire thing, is not only are they misrepresenting what Paul taught, but they, it's actually based on this misunderstanding. They think Paul brought a, a, a Gentile into the temple because they saw Paul walking around with a Gentile earlier in the day. The reality is, Paul never brought the Gentile into the temple. <laughs> this whole thing is a misunderstanding, and they're up in arms, and they get angry about it. They make this huge scene, and the entire crowd gets riled up there in the temple. Like, they all get angry, they all get mad, and they rush towards Paul. They drag him out of the temple. They lock the temple gates, and they're in this huge uproar. 
Now, the, the tribune, who is the commander of the military units in the region, he hears about this big uproar going on in Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem has been a problem city for a long time for the Roman Empire, and so they have a military presence that's just constantly there putting down uprisings and uproars. And so, uh, so they hear this uproar going on in the city of Jerusalem, and so the tribune takes some soldiers down to see what's going on. And they see that the crowd is actually trying to kill Paul at this point. By the time they get down there, they are beating Paul up. Paul's on the ground. They're kicking and stomping and punching him. And so the tribune steps in. They separate everybody, and they put Paul in chains. They arrest him just so they can figure out what's going on. And they set Paul to the side, and then the tribune gets up, and he asks the crowd, all right, what's going on? What did he do? What is, he, what is his offense? What can we sort out? And so they begin asking the crowd what's going on. The problem is most of the crowd doesn't know, right? This whole thing is based on a misunderstanding in the first place. And so, so the tribune gets up and says, what did he do? And this part of the crowd says, well, he did this. And then this part of the crowd says, he did that. And you can just picture like a very frustrated tribune sitting there trying to, to figure out what's going on. And this mob of people are all hurling differing accounts all at the same time. And, and, and this crowd is in an uproar. And so finally getting nowhere with the crowd, Paul, Paul picks up, I mean, the, uh, the tribune picks up Paul and takes him to the barracks and orders him to go to the barracks. And in fact, the crowd is so violent against Paul at this point that the soldiers actually had to carry Paul, like manhandle him and get him into the barracks, like get him up to the barracks so that the crowd couldn't kill him at this point. And just before they get up to the, the barracks, Paul turns and, and says something to the tribune. Look with me in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you know Greek? So Paul turned to the tribune as he's about to go in, and in Greek, he asked the tribune, hey, can I say something to you? Now, Paul is being very intentional there, <laughs> speaking in Greek to the tribune. The tribune, uh, as a Roman citizen, as uh, not being from the region, he probably would have spoken Greek in his everyday life. Greek was his language. It was the thing most familiar to him. And so Paul, as an educated citizen of the Roman Empire, as a guy who wasn't born in Jerusalem, uh, but uh, was born as a Roman citizen somewhere else, he speaks Greek intentionally to the tribune to let him know, like, hey, I'm not a threat to you. Uh, I'm on your side to break down. This is another instance of Paul removing a barrier. And he speaks Greek to the guy, and the guy's he's like, whoa, you know Greek? And notice what he says in verse 38. The tribune says, are, uh, wait, 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 are you not then the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins in, out into the wilderness? So this is another misunderstanding. The tribune thinks that Paul is a terrorist. And that's why he arrested him so quickly. And so Paul's, Paul quickly dispels that misunderstanding. He's like, no, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not one of those guys. He quickly corrects that misunderstanding. And then he asks the tribune, if he can turn and if he can correct the bigger misunderstanding with the crowd of angry Jews who are trying to kill him. The tribune says, yes, you can respond to them. You can speak. You can try to address this bigger misunderstanding. And what Paul does when he gets up to speak is he shares what we would call his testimony. And he chooses to react and speak to the crowd through his testimony because he, through his testimony, he's able to present the gospel. Notice with me how Paul presents his testimony, beginning in verse 40. 
When the tribute had given Paul permission to speak, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, or your Bibles might say Aramaic. He, he spoke to them in Aramaic, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language or in Aramaic, they became even more quiet. So Paul gets up. And he waves his hand, and the crowd quiets, and he begins to speak to them in Aramaic. The crowd of Jews who grew up in Jerusalem, Aramaic would have been their daily language, the language that they understood and knew. And so Paul gets up because he knows Aramaic, and he speaks to them in Aramaic. Luke is not uh, blind to these details. He included these details for a reason. He just spoke Greek to the tribune. Now he speaks Aramaic to the Hebrew crowd, to the Jewish crowd. Paul is doing his best to remove any barriers that he can to the gospel. And if presenting his defense in Aramaic to the Jews is going to help his case, then he's going to present it in Aramaic. He's doing everything he can to be heard by this group of Jews. He speaks to them in Aramaic, and this is what he begins to say. He tells them about his Jewish heritage. He tells them that he's a Jew that he was born to a Jewish family, that he was educated in Jerusalem under the, 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 the highly respected uh, educator Gamaliel. He told them that, that he actually used to persecute Christians because he was so passionate about Judaism. And so if there's anybody that's going to be able to understand the problems that the Jews have with him, if there's anybody that's going to be able to understand the Jews' thought process, in this case, it's him. Because he used to be a Jew among Jews. Like, he used to be the the best Jew you could possibly be. Highly educated in the law, highly passionate about, uh, about preserving Judaism, and highly passionate about God. He was chief among Jews, and so he was telling them, he, he had the pedigree, he had the background. He understands what they're thinking. He understands their thought process. And then he tells them the story that we've read earlier in the book of Acts, that he, he once got a letter allowing him to go up to the city of Damascus and to persecute Christians there. And on his way to Damascus, there was an overwhelming light that shone around him. And look with me in verse 7 of chapter 22. Paul said, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So Paul says, On my way to Damascus, a Jew among Jews, someone who's passionate about Judaism, who persecuted the church because of how passionate I was, on my way to Damascus, a light shone around me, and Jesus spoke to me, and Paul found out that he was he thought he was defending the people of God, but in reality, he was persecuting the people of God. This entire time, Paul realized he was the one that was wrong about Jesus. Jesus really is the Son of God. Jesus really is the Savior. Jesus really is the one that provides eternal life. And in that moment, on the road to Damascus, with a blinding light and the voice of God, he hears that Jesus really is the one who we need to put our faith and trust in. He knows and realizes in that moment that he was completely wrong about Jesus. So Paul goes on to the city of Damascus and he meets a Christian there and, uh, named Ananias. And look what, how Paul describes Ananias in verse 12. One Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me and said to me, came to me and standing by me said to me, 
Brother Saul, re- receive your sight. In that very hour, I received my sight and I saw, after I saw him. So, so this, blind, this light blinded Paul, and he meets Ananias there in Damascus. And he, he uh, describes Ananias to this crowd as a guy who is very Jewish. He was devout according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews. And so what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them and teaching them that his conversion didn't automatically make him not Jewish. It didn't automatically make him hate the law. It didn't make him tell people that they need to become Gentiles. Like everything that he's been accused of doing, he's, he's showing in this moment that his conversion didn't put him against the Old Testament law in this case. He says in verse 14, the same guy, the same Ananias, tells Paul, the God of our fathers anointed, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name. So Paul says, it's this guy, this guy who's well spoken of by the Jews, this guy who was devoted to the law, this Christian is the one that God used to tell Paul that he was going to be a witness for God in the world, that he was going to be one who would proclaim the good news of salvation to people. So naturally, what Paul wanted to do in that moment was to go back to Jerusalem and to go tell all of his Jewish brothers and sisters that they were wrong about Jesus, that he had just, he had just been as passionate or if not more passionate than them about putting down this religious sect that was worshiping Jesus. And on the road to Damascus, he realized he was wrong, that they were wrong, that Jesus is the source of eternal life, that Jesus is the Savior. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem to tell his Jewish brothers and sisters about Christ and the salvation that can come from him. But look with me what God says in verse Verse 18, God meets him in Jerusalem and says, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and giving approval and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul was saying, they know me. They know how passionate I was about defending Judaism. They know how passionate I was about putting down this group of people that followed Jesus. So shouldn't my conversion story mean something to them? Like shouldn't, uh, if there's anyone in the world that's going to understand what happened to me, it's going to be these people. When I tell them about Jesus, won't they just fall down and, and worship him? Won't they understand that they, that they are wrong about Christ? They, they know me. They know the transformation. They know, what, they know that if anyone was going to become a Christian, it wasn't going to be me. Shouldn't they believe? And God tells him in verse 21, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul wanted to proclaim the good news of salvation to his Jewish brothers and sisters. God tells them, they're not going to listen to you. I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles. So Paul, through this entire speech, is doing what he wanted to do all those years ago. He's trying to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish the years ago when, they, when he placed his faith in Jesus after that road of Damascus. Now is finally his chance, standing there on the, on the steps of the barracks, speaking to this, this angry mob. He is finally his chance to tell them about what happened to him in Damascus. 
It's finally his chance to share the gospel with his Jewish brothers and sisters. It's finally the opportunity to see them come to know Christ. And so he's pouring out his heart. He's sharing his testimony, hoping that finally they will understand what God has done to him. They will finally understand the salvation that comes from Christ. But look at how they respond in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. So his Jewish brothers and sisters once again rejected the message of salvation. And not only did they reject the message of eternal life in Jesus, they wanted to kill Paul. They were angry and incensed and and throwing up dust and throwing off their robes. And so, in fact, the the, the Roman tribune had to actually step in again and save Paul's life. They had to drag him into the barracks in order to protect him. And all they could do was keep him in the barracks. They couldn't do anything more to him because Paul had uh, rights as a Roman citizen. And we'll see those kind of play out through the rest of the book of Acts. But this moment of, of pulling Paul into the barracks saved his life from this angry mob that wanted to murder him because he told them about Jesus. And Paul, at this point, is probably reeling about what just happened, just sitting there in the barracks trying to figure out what just occurred because Paul did everything he could to remove any barriers to the gospel, right? He spoke in Aramaic. He, he spoke to them in their language. He went out of his way to go to the temple for six or seven days to show them that he's not against Jewish customs or Jewish practices. He went out of his way to share his testimony, to relay to the people there what exactly happened happened to him on the road of Damascus to show them the message of the gospel. And the Jewish leaders there still refuse to believe the the, the obvious truth of the story, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the provider of eternal life. And he's probably sitting there trying to figure out what just happened. Where he, Paul in other letters, for example, in the book of Romans, he writes that his predominant audience is the Gentiles throughout his ministry, but his heart breaks and yearns for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He wants them to know Jesus, and he's sitting there in the barracks having finally had an opportunity to share the gospel with a wide group of Jews in the city of Jerusalem, and he is sitting there hearing them scream and yell and call for his murder. As Paul is reflecting on these events, he probably came to uh, an idea, a a lesson for Christians and for churches, and it, it would have sounded something like this. We need to remove barriers to the gospel because the gospel is offensive enough on its own. We need to remove barriers to the gospel. We need to go out of our way to try to overcome and demolish barriers to people understanding the good news of salvation in Jesus because the gospel itself is inherently offensive and it is offensive enough on its own. We don't need to give it any help. We do need to remove barriers. Paul sitting there in the, the barracks or reflecting on this later still would have said that we need to go out of our way to remove barriers to the gospel just like Paul did throughout this chapter, right? Paul went out of his way to show them that he's not against Jewish practices. He went out of his way to speak Greek to the Roman Tribune, to speak Aramaic to this Hebrew audience. Like, he went out of his way to try to remove any barriers he possibly could 
to the message of salvation. Uh, and Paul tells us, we, I know that Paul still thinks that way because he tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians something similar. He tells the Corinthian Christians, to the Jews I became like a Jew as under the law. To the Gentiles I became like a Gentile, free from the law. So he says, like, we want to remove barriers to the gospel. There's a fancy word that we use for this called contextualization. We need to contextualize the message of the gospel, meaning we need to take the message and, and work it in a way that, is, that best fits our context and is least offensive to our community. For example, if you're going to go overseas, let's say you're going to go south to Mexico as a long-term missionary, you should probably learn Spanish. Because when you go proclaim the gospel, it should probably be in Spanish because proclaiming the gospel in English would be quite a barrier to the gospel in Mexico. Right? So to contextualize the message of the gospel, we preach the gospel and proclaim the message in the same language as the people we're talking to. In, in, in other areas, we as a church need to contextualize the message of the gospel. The, the music that we sing on Sunday morning should be contextual to our area, meaning that they should be songs and styles that, 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 are, that fit our context so that our church will be, will be most likely to sing and worship God in the songs and so that someone who's outside and a non-Christian who comes in and sees us and witnesses what's going on here will actually hear the message of the gospel in the songs instead of immediately tuning it out. Right? Our ministries, our programs, all of those things should be contextualized to our area, to our community. Whether that means having an excellent kids and student ministries because our community loves families and deeply desires those things. Whether that means being, uh, having a sense of excellence overall in everything that we do because our community is professional and has extremely high standards. Whether that means that we need to start programs and ministries that meet specific needs in our community, whatever it is, our, uh, we need to contextualize the gospel message to, so that it can be best understood and heard by the people in our community. We need to go out of our way to remove barriers to the gospel. The same thing is true for you in your individual life. You need to go out of your way to remove any barriers that you possibly can to the good news of salvation in Jesus. If you're going to get lunch with an Orthodox Jew or a Muslim and you want to lead them to Christ, don't order the ham sandwich. Right? Don't offend them with your meal. The gospel is offensive enough on your own. Your lunch choices don't need to make it worse. Like We need to go out of our way to remove barriers to the gospel. But I also want to note that the gospel is inherently offensive and that we can do everything right and the person may still not place their faith in Jesus. The gospel is offensive. The gospel message tells us that we are sinners and that we are, are broken people in desperate need of a savior. In fact, the gospel message tells us we are so broken that it takes a supernatural act of God for regeneration. The gospel tells us now, we have been wrong about Jesus our entire life. And that he's not just a good teacher or a good man or a mythical figure, but that Jesus is the son of God who, who died and rose again to provide eternal life for us. And that he is worthy of our worship and honor and praise. And that we need to submit to him as Lord. The gospel is inherently offensive. So we... We can't take the offensiveness out of the gospel without still proclaiming the, while still proclaiming the same gospel. Right? There are churches who they, they tout relevance as the 
key to church growth, right? That's the standard. Relevance is what we need to be relevant. That needs to be the thing that we are. And we do need to be relevant. We need to contextualize the message of the gospel. But they argue that if we can just be the, the most relevant, the, the best contextualized, the least offensive that we can possibly be, then our church is going to grow like crazy. And it's true. It's not hard to build a church and to, to make a church really big when you proclaim a message that minimizes sin and says, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. You're actually good people. You just need a little pick-me-up during the week. It's not hard to, to grow a church and make it really big when you start uh, minimizing the, the importance of Jesus in our lives and you start telling people about a Jesus whose biggest goal for you is that you would be happy and healthy and wealthy. Because that's a message that our community can get on board with. That's a message that's not offensive to the people around us. That's a perfectly contextualized message. The problem is it's not the message of the gospel. So you tell a message of the gospel that is completely inoffensive. You've removed every little bit of it that is, uh, that is offensive to the people in our community. You're not proclaiming the same gospel. We need to go out of our way to remove extra offensive barriers to, to be as inoffensive as we possibly can in the way that we present the gospel, but we have to present the true gospel, which is inherently offensive. So we, again, we could do everything right, and people still may not place their faith in Jesus. And, and I want to hopefully comfort you in that. It is not up to you to make sure that they become Christians when you share the gospel. Like, I hope you feel the weight just lifted off your shoulders, the burden lifted off of you. Your goal and what God has called you to do is not to guarantee success. What God has called you to do is to be faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel and, and have a burden on your heart for the lost and to do everything you can to make sure that you're not getting in the way of the gospel message. What does this look like? I'm a big fan of the English language. I don't know if you've noticed, you can tell. Big fan of the English language. And so it physically pains me to refer to a single individual with the pronouns they, them, because that's not how English works. But if I know someone, they claim their pronouns are they, them, and I can refer to them as they and them, and it's going to leave open the communication channel so that I can share the gospel with them, and referring to that person as him or her is going to be offensive to them and shut off barriers to, or, and, and produce a barrier to the gospel, then I'm going to refer to them as them. If I know uh, the, the Bible speaks about uh, the life choices of someone who's an Austin who chooses to become an Ashley, right? And the Bible speaks of that as sin. But if I know this person and I know that referring to the person as Ashley is going to leave open the channel of communication of the gospel, and referring to them as Austin is going to be offensive and shut off any communication of the gospel, then I'm going to refer to them as Ashley. Because I want to share the gospel. I want them to know Jesus. If there's a word or a phrase that has been fine for years but is now considered offensive by this group or that group, I'm going to go out of my way to not say that word or phrase. Not because I need to, but because if I'm going to be more offensive by the things that I say, like I want to avoid those things. The gospel is offensive enough. I don't need to give it help. We need to go out of our way to remove barriers to the gospel so that when we present the good news of salvation in, in Jesus Christ, the only thing that's keeping them from placing their faith in Jesus is the offensiveness of the message itself. 
some of you here this morning are offended by the gospel. And you've been offended by the gospel your entire life. And maybe you don't have an open resentment and hostility to the gospel. Like you don't, you don't hear the gospel and you wag your fist at the church. Maybe you've been in church your entire life. You've heard the gospel, but you, uh, to you, it's been offensive to you your entire life because deep down you think that you're good. You don't, you don't need it. You don't actually need a savior. And to, to think otherwise would be offensive. And so you come to church and you, you put on the, the religious language and you, you follow the, the religious habits just so you can square away the whole eternal destination thing. But, but in, the, in the end, you don't really accept the gospel because it's offensive to you. This morning what God is calling you to do is to repent and put your faith in Jesus, to trust in Christ as the Son of God, the one who died and rose again and has provided a way for you to have eternal life in Christ. Like To trust in him and to submit to him as the Lord of your life to, to change everything about you in response to the gospel. That's what God is calling you to do this morning. If that's you and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've been offended by the gospel your entire life and you've never taken the step to actually submit to Jesus, this morning is the morning for you to know what eternal life is like in Christ. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If that's you and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I would love for you to come up front. I'd love to pray with you. And then I'd love to talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. If coming up to the front is embarrassing to you and you don't want to do it, just grab me after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here without placing your faith in Christ, without knowing the eternal life that Paul knew, that Paul proclaimed, the eternal life that is exciting and, and, and uh, that, that produced an overwhelming joy in Paul that he wanted to share it with others. Do not leave here without eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message of the gospel. I thank you that there is salvation in Jesus. That eternal life is available for us. And God, I thank you that, that even though it's offensive, it's right. That you, you have saved us from sin and death. And when we recognize the depths of our sin, when we recognize the depths of our brokenness, then the gospel becomes all the more beautiful because you have saved us from that. You have set us free from sin and death. You have made us alive in Jesus Christ. Well, I pray for, for us as a church that we would be a church that would remove any barriers that we can to make sure that we can proclaim the gospel, to go out of our way, to be as inoffensive as we possibly can be, knowing that the gospel is offensive enough on its own. But God, that we will go out with passion and excitement and go share the gospel with the world that desperately needs it. And I pray for those here who do not know you and have never placed their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that this morning be the morning that you convict them of their sin. This morning would be the morning that you remind them of your glorious love for them and free grace that is available in Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray.